Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wheels of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning catastrophes, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. Our guest this week is Douglas Bonaparte. Douglas is the founder of Bonafide Wealth, I see what you did there, a firm dedicated to providing both effective and relatable advice to the city's hardest working young professionals. Through his personal experiences with student debt, higher education, career development, professional achievement, and entrepreneurship, Douglas shares a perspective that very few financial advisors in the industry can. He then draws upon the real-life examples of his firm's clientele, offering financial solutions that are as creative as they are practical. Thanks for joining us, Douglas. Thanks for having me. So the subject of this week's episode is the controversial and tragic musician Amy Winehouse. Amy was hailed as one of the world's most talented young songwriters in the wake of her debut album, Frank, in 2003. She was completely unique with a personal style and sound that were throwbacks to the girls' groups of the 50s and 60s, right down to the signature Beehive hairdo. Three years later, her follow-up album, Back to Black, won five Grammys and turned her into a global superstar. As is sadly so often the case, though, success didn't really agree with Amy. She spiraled into drug and alcohol addiction, with many fans blaming her hard-partying husband at the time, Blake Fielder Civil. They had a volatile relationship marked by drug use by both and a brief stint in prison for Fielder Civil. The pair eventually divorced after two years of marriage in July 2009. Fielder Civil reportedly got about 300K in the settlement. Though she managed to separate herself from Fielder Civil, Amy still had more than her fair share of demons, heroin addiction being the headliner. And she tragically died two years later of alcohol poisoning on July 23rd, 2011. She did not leave a will. Her after tax assets of $3.64 million went to her parents, Janice, 63, and Mitch, 68. Since Amy's death, the value of her state is believed to have grown considerably from song royalties. A shooting star in life, she became a legend in death, with music fans buying 1.7 million copies of her albums in the first year after her death alone. And that's a truly ridiculous number, because, I mean, can you remember the last time you purchased an album? Mitch and Janice used a chunk of the inheritance to set up the Amy Winehouse Foundation to help young musicians and people with addiction problems. Though, God forbid, the story ends on that semi-hopeful note, in 2019, eight years after Amy's death, Fielder Civil reemerged with far fewer teeth and a $1.4 million legal claim against her estate. He claimed to have been with her during her most creative period and to be the inspiration for the hit song, Back to Black. Despite his fairly dubious arguments, the case has yet to be adjudicated. Now, the issue with Amy Winehouse's estate is pretty cut and dry. Nobody expects to die at 27. Yet, even if it's somewhat unrealistic to expect someone that young to have a full estate plan, it's not too much to ask for them to be some sort of financial plan in general. Despite global megastardom, 
Amy Winehouse was only worth $3.64 million on her death. That math just doesn't add up to there being any sort of larger plan in place, though admittedly drug addiction can muddy those waters a bit. And Amy's not alone in her lack of a plan. The millennial generation is simultaneously the most talked about, sought after, and yet curiously underserved demographic in the financial planning industry. Douglas, what are some of the aspects that make millennial clients unique? And why do you think so many advisors are struggling to connect with them? Great question. And it really just comes down to relatability. So there's this new generation, you know, of, of young professionals, the millennials who I don't know if they're, you know, so young anymore, the oldest of the cohort getting into their late thirties, almost 40 years of age. Um, we have kids, we have jobs that we've been at um, in careers that we've established for 10 years, but nonetheless, I think our financial circumstances are very different than our parents and even our grandparents. And when you look at the financial planning profession, you look at the financial advice industry, if you will, um, you look at the demographics, you look at the statistics there, and you see that it does not look like an older millennial, and it certainly doesn't look like a younger millennial. It's your 60-something-year-old guy who likely began their career if they've been doing it a while in the brokerage era, making transactions, selling stocks, they were registered representatives. And that is just not what millennials are necessarily looking for when it comes to their financial lives. They want guidance and advice. You have an industry that's coming from a different position when they view what the needs are of potential clients versus what the needs are of my generation. And, and that's where I come in, right? So um, I picked up on that maybe six, six years ago when you'd get laughed at by any manager, any RIA, any bank for saying, I want to work almost exclusively with, with millennials. You'd get laughed at for that. And I said, well, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm still going to play that game. I'm going to go long on that. And here we are. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned uh, the, the RIA thing because I can actually track that evolution in the evolution of uh, the publication that I work for. You know, it started out as, as a registered representative and then it got shortened to, you know, registered rep. You're going to be hip. And then eventually it just became wealth management and wealthmanagement.com. Let's add as the years went on. Yeah. It's kind of funny that you can kind of track that same like parabola, I guess. Yeah. That's you just a, described in sort of the name of the publication. Yeah. That, that is so, um, you know, that is so in line with where the profession industry is at right now with trying to figure out how to represent you know, the financial advisor and, and, you know, reg BI, you had the CFP board recently remove the way that certified financial planners, of course, are compensated, right? There's no more, Hey, are they fee only fee-based commission only? Um, that's, that's gone. So, you know, here we are almost, um, you know, how many years into this evolution and we still, we still can say, all right, you're this, you're that, this is what the fiduciary really is. It's, it's a giant mess. Absolutely. 
And I think also one of the things that is kind of hard to put a finger on, at least as someone who works in financial media and kind of gets pitches on this a lot, is what the heck actually is a millennial, right? It was going to get talked about. I mean, I guess I'm right. technically a millennial as well. Um, you talk, we talk about it as like this monolithic kind of situation, but really it's like I'm 37, I'm a millennial, and I'm pretty yeah. sure there's millennials who are as young as 20. So, I mean, and obviously we're at very different financial love, points in our lives. Yeah, I love that you brought that up. And as a as a 35-year-old, you know, certainly you and I are both older millennials. Could you only imagine the conversation that you would have with someone a decade younger than you? You know, it's very different than like a 65-year-old having a conversation with a 55-year-old. Um, right. And, and, and look, there's just that much more time that has passed for them to relate to while someone in their early twenties versus someone in their early to mid thirties are really coming from totally different planets. Like I, I cannot have a productive conversation with a 25 year old who doesn't have kids, you know, a mound of student loan debt, a mortgage to pay is a decade into their career and, and hey, that, that's no fault of their own. They're, they're 25. I hope they're having a blast and figuring themselves out. I remember what it was like to be 25. So it's interesting how at, you know, this, this phase of, you know, millennialdom, there's such a great disparity between the younger um, folks in the cohort, uh, cohort and the older ones, as opposed to say, you know, younger versus older baby boomers. I'm sure they're much more, you know, similar and can relate to one another as opposed to millennials. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, someone who's 55 versus someone who's 65, they're both sort of, one is kind of seeing his retirement plan come to realization while the other is kind of putting it they're, together. But they're that's both, not such a different place yeah. as I just got out of college versus I've been working for, for 15 years. They're both probably booking, you know, cruises for next yeah. fall. <laughs> Hopefully not, but we'll see. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> but um, so what can an advisor do then? I mean, for our audience, obviously, you can't just magically make yourself younger. So if I do want to appeal to this generation and I do want to try to communicate or find millennial clients or at least meet them as much as halfway as I can, me being the hypothetical 50 year old white guy financial advisor, mm -hmm. what, what can I do that won't be like, like ridiculous and like, hello, fellow kids, you know? <laughs> Did you just do the uh, Steve Buscemi meme there? Yes. Yes, it was. Okay. I, I appreciate that. Um, it's a fantastic question. And I'm not here to tell, you know, any, um, any veteran advisor, any older advisor, you know, that they need to do something that's not, you know, natural to them. Like if you are good at getting your, you know, fellow boomer in the door, you know, with, with the rollover and the need for, you know, some, some really good retirement planning and estate planning, like focus on that, like that, that's clearly what you should continue to do. But if you're also interested in making sure that your practice survives 20, 30 years from now, you 100% need to focus and concern yourself with, to some extent, bringing in those younger clients. And if you're not the person to do it, then I think it really you know, goes to someone that you could hire your associates if you have, you know, 
and I hate this term, a junior advisor. So real quick, don't, don't use that term. But if you have younger associates and financial advisors uh, in your practice, empower them. You know, low-hanging fruit, the children of your existing clientele, you know, have them grab a beer or a glass of wine while you're meeting with the parents, not to discuss anything you know, financial in their lives, that just seems weird and cheesy. Just, you know, go get to know them, right? Go have your associate get to know the children of your clients um, and let them know that if they have any questions, the, the practice is there for them. And I mean, that that's literally a layup. And then it goes all the way to the, you know, harder side of things of actively marketing towards the generation. And again, you know, someone in that cohort, a, f- a fellow millennial is going to have an easier time marketing to millennials than, you know, a baby boomer down to millennials. I, I, I get it. And I'm not here to, you know, try and tell you, you need to put a square peg in a round hole. But there are, there are plenty of ways to do this. Again, I think the best way is through younger associates or younger advisors, empowering them and giving them what they need and understanding that it's likely a long runway. Like you need to remember that if they're focusing on someone in late twenties and thirties, I mean, this is a pretty dynamic time in people's lives. So I get it. It's hard. You know, it's an investment um, to really hope that you bear fruit over five, six, maybe seven years, but that's the best way to do it. And if you are so fortunate to have the skill set um, as someone in their 40s, 50s, 60s to go reach down into the 20 and 30 year old, you know, uh, arena and get clients from that, more more power to you. It's not um, impossible, but it's improbable. Yeah, I particularly like this idea of empowering uh, the younger associates, younger advisors in in your firms because I mean, there's no shortage of them. Let's let's be honest. And, you know, they're all sort of waiting for a chance to do something. And this is so they can get on the job training here also by sort of, hey, working with not yet clients, but kind of halfway clients. And, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, it's sort of like a nice in-between where they're not going to really mess anything up necessarily, but they can kind of cut their teeth. Well, that's the rub. Clients. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, though. And, and this now kind of has me a little triggered in a way to, you know, once again, have to point out on the podcast that I think the biggest issue for young advisors and don't know if this is the direction we wanted to go but the biggest issue is that they're not being put into a training or recruitment model that understands that you need a considerable amount of time to mature as a person right like you can't be 23 and 24 and expect to build this robust book of clients that you know has the right margin that brings in the right kind of revenue so this is me throwing somewhat you know of shade at this sales culture that still exists in the profession in the industry and it's you know it's got to go and that's you know me just saying oh it's got to go isn't isn't easy the hardest part about being an advisor regardless of your age is business development is, is getting relationships in the door to provide financial planning and financial advice services and then asset management and product related type stuff. And if you think here in 2020, you can just bring 
a 23, 24 year old into your practice and get that in two, three, four years, you're kidding yourself. And that sets up a whole kind of, you know, different dynamic than what once was and what needs to be. And I think that playbook is still being written. And I think the best firms are the ones who figured that out. Yeah. And I think that that's instructive. I mean, even though you took it in that direction, it's instructive of, of why they're struggling to connect with millennials as well, because it's one of the same problem, right? Mm-hmm. In that, you know, it, a lot of times they, they you know, if a millennial person comes in, they kind of get offhandedly rejected because they're not really coming in with tons of assets or they're not coming in with the sort of questions that these advisors are used to dealing with, where it's like, oh, what can I put you in? You know, they're coming in asking about their credit rating or <laughs> the student loan, you know, debts. You know, advisors are worried to helping parents set up, you know, accounts for their kid's college, <laughs> not helping for their kid pay off his, you know what I mean? It, and so these a, are the same yeah. problems that, that they have with the young advisors. The idea that a millennial client, a lot of the times, unless you, you know, strike gold with one of the, like, the Henrys, which is one of my least favorite acronyms <laughs> in all of finance, but um, you know, it, it's it's someone who you're also it's a client you're investing in, right? Like someone who's not gonna be you're not gonna make a ton of money off of for quite a while. Yeah, I mean that that's the heart of my story. I was sitting in business school at night, you know, in my late twenties at NYU trying to figure out, you know, number one, securing this degree as, you know, a, uh, a fail safe that if I wasn't able to build my own practice, that I could at least go work for a private bank and have some pedigree and, and live a nice life and, you know, do what I love to do. But I probably wouldn't be the entrepreneur I consider myself today in, in growing and building what I've built. Um, but it was at that moment, I looked around and said, okay, here's the long game I'm going to play. I'm going to invest um, in my classmates, in my peers, that's where the whole impetus to start Bonafide Wealth came from. Um, but to digress, what I, what I think is one of the more interesting conundrums, if not dynamics, that comes with a new approach to recruitment and training young advisors, and this is especially true for small firms or solo practitioners, is the Um, amount of trust that both parties need from the hiring advisor to, you know, the associate, you're dealing with a 23 year old, right? So take it from the view of the advisor in their fifties or sixties. And, you know, they want to get a success, you know, let's say it's a solo, they want to get a succession plan, but they really want this to work out. So they have a retirement plan of their own and now they need to invest. You know, they're being asked to invest you know, five to 10 years into a 22, 23 year old. And maybe they've never been a manager in their life. They're not, you know, super relatable to that person, but they got to figure out a way to have them and incentivize them and train them in such a way that they want to stick around that long. And then you have from the perspective of that 23, 24 year old, right. Who is arguably flaky and figuring themselves out. You know, they need to be invested enough into that person that just hired them to say, yes, this is, you know, something I ultimately want to continue doing. And I can see how I get from, you know, being 24 to 32 and having a piece of this practice and feeling like an owner. And that, that dynamic right there, first of all, no, no one talks about that enough, but no one really, I think, recognizes, or at least it needs to be recognized how difficult, inherently difficult that is. And because it's so difficult is primarily why 
you know, it's, it's so difficult to, you know, recruit in, in this, this new era of, of the industry. Yeah. I mean, that has to be a very intentional process. I think there's a lot of, um, you know, you think that they'll think of step one, like, Oh, we'll have, you know, this to attract the young advisors. And then, then they'll be like, and then they'll get into our firm culture and it'll be great. And then there's no like middle, like they skip I the mean, whole middle step. Yeah. You're, you're talking about they're getting that buy-in, you know, you're talking about firm culture when we're talking about a solo practice. Yes. You know, for, for the smaller ensemble practices, but you're talking about firm culture in a, as a solo practitioner, right? Let's take it down to that level. Like there's, there's no culture. The culture yeah. is that person is that person themselves and, and the, and the way they behave. And, and, you know, they're coming from uh, typically a, well, I've built this myself, my way, doing it like this. This is how it's going to be. You should replicate that. It's like, yo, it's, yeah, that was 19, you know, 91. Like, you know, chill with that. My, my wife, you know, and I have to commute every day, you know, in and out of a city or it's just, it's just not like that. Right? I can't pick up the phone and cold call my way to 10 million in assets under management in two years. Get out of here. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's so interesting how, as someone who writes about estate planning primarily, um, you know, when I talk about succession planning and when it, you know financial advisors talk about succession planning, it's two different things, but it's a very parallel track in a way because you kind of see the same problems where you have a sort of a, the wealth creator or whatever, in this case, it's the business creator. And you know, he's, he's put his whole life into this thing. And now, now he's, got, he's looking at some dumb kid who he's got to pass it off to. And just like, he can't fathom. Yeah. There, it's, it's interesting. You bring that up, you know, for, and not to just keep, and, and look, there's bias here. Like I, I am for the most part, a solo practitioner with, with one staff here. So um, these issues come up all the time. I mean, here we are helping our clients, you know, deal with their own, you know, financial circumstances and providing them with solutions, specifically in the estate planning area. And, you know, as solo practitioners ourselves, you know, we, we can often struggle here. So uh, it's always interesting to see how helpful we are to our clients who have the ability to, you know, execute on the advice, but we ourselves, at least as small, small business owners, um, might struggle here as well. Um, or, just struggle here so interesting point yeah, i think it's a lot of the reason that like you know the old adage that you know advisors books of business look a lot like they do <laughs> you know it's that because what's you're interested in and what you're worried about you're gonna naturally pay more attention to you know and you're gonna be drawn and be more invested in the clients well that's the that thing going through the same know? thing you know yeah 100 and that's the thing here like what i've done in terms of building a practice around my peers is, is literally no different than the advisor 30 years, my senior who built their entire practice. If they've been around that long around their peers is what you naturally do. That that's the same. That will continue to be true. I think for anyone building a quote unquote book of business in a service industry, but what's drastically changed is you know, the, the product offering, right? You're no longer saying, hey, you know, Dr. Smith, you got to get into, you know, IBM and Microsoft. And then you hit them up with the stocks they've never heard about, right? And that was literally like your business. That's 
the, the bro you know the brokerage day and then somewhere between then and now you were like all right well here's this thing called financial planning and advice so you know full disclosure i'm, I'm the son of a certified financial planner my, my father started when financial planning was was almost brand new but he had recognized that that was really where the value was and that was the way that if you are going to sell stuff like that's the best way to go about doing it that you know an engineer by trade knows uh you know what the path of least resistance looks like so he picked up on that and you know that's been instilled in me but yeah that's that's i think somewhat of the huge difference is that you have young and here we are still talking about advisors and whatnot. Um, but you have young advisors who need to go out there and talk about financial planning and advice and not something that's product related. And there's a huge disconnect there between, again, um, you know, older advisors and younger advisors. And that translates into having to go out and get, you know, younger clients versus older clients. It's what they remember and what they know about what we do as professionals. Absolutely. So I guess we can bring it back to the clients a little bit now, even though I enjoy the advisor talk. Yeah, sure. Sort of what are like, we're looking at sort of the issues that are different for a millennial client. And again, talking about the generation like that is, is makes things a little difficult, mm -hmm. but like sort of when an advisor has to look that I have to offer different services effectively to, to, to these people for lack of a better way of putting it than, than I would for my more typical client in a different way. So, so what does that necessarily, you know, it's not going to be the same for every advisor or every client, but kind of vaguely, what does that look like? Yeah, it's, uh, again, another really, really good question. So you got this relatability function here, the fact that you can actually understand what they're going through in their lives relative to what you're going through. And, you know, not to, not to sound almost cliche uh, millennial on this, but there's, there's a certain experience, right? There's an experience that they're having that you, you are having as well. And you then link those experiences to the areas of financial planning that are most relevant here. And there's, you know, for, for folks that are starting out and just starting their family or getting married, like estate planning isn't really the, the, you know, the depth of advice that you can offer. It's more like check the box, like, hey, you just got married or you're having a kid. You need to go see the attorney and get these, you know, basic estate planning documents drafted. All right, go check the box. But when it comes to mastering cash flow, right, and 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 creating the systematic savings, you know, to build that solid foundation for their financial life for the next 20, 30, 40 years, like that that's sometimes that's some work. That's some work you got to put in there to lay that all out and build them up over the course of the next few years. Like literally bringing them from now you know where your money goes. We have to build a cash reserve. We have to max out those retirement plans. We've done all that. Oh my God, we did that in 18 months. Great. Let's create the systematic savings and the dollar cost averaging strategies to now save above and beyond, you know, what we can put away in retirement accounts and nine to 12 months of cash, you know, for an emergency. Okay. Now we got to go buy a home. Oh, you had a kid. All right. Let's revisit that plan again. I think it's just, it, it is probably the most dynamic time in one's life, your 20s and 30s. You know, the only thing that comes close to that is probably retirement and helping people transition from workforce to, you know, and, and even the definition of retirement's changing here, but whatever the notion of financial independence is for that individual, that's probably, you know, and I think it pales in comparison to just how dynamic 
the stage of life that I advise on is. Yeah, it's very interesting. I think one of the the key elements there, and I think also in, in retirement, actually, this this is a key element as well, is the fact, you know, the idea of the advisor as sort of educator as well as advisor, where you're not just sort of moving things around and sending them a statement. You kind of have to take them yeah. and sit them down and hold their hands and like, hey, not only am I doing this and realizing this needs to be done, but I need to explain to you and have you understand why we're doing this and why it needs to be done and why, you know, what I'm, why what I'm doing is important. Yeah. And again, I'm not, I'm not like here to say that they're, you know, that all older advisors are, you know, only asset managers. I know so many, so many amazing planners who lead with financial planning, you know, across all ages uh, of the profession of advisors and planners, but you can't ignore the fact that, you know, most financial advisors are really more serving the investment advisor function than they are the financial planning function. Um, I, I, I just don't think too many people would argue that point. So again, you know, when, when you're leading with, you know, even though it's not a commission based model anymore, if you're, if you're an AUM investment advisor focusing on, you know, generating returns in, you know, as the primary ver- and, and the secondary being, well, you know, is this, is this linked to the retirement plan and the holistic financial plan? I mean, I think that's, that's just what we have more of. Absolutely. And then I didn't mean to imply that, you know, older advisors are all, you know, doing less work or anything. It's just the idea of educating somebody in their forties is, is just, they naturally are going to have less to learn <laughs> than, than somebody in their twenties. They're, they're going to have some life experience, presumably. Yeah. And it sort of makes that hopefully makes the advisor's job a little easier. 100%. I mean, you're, you you might have a lot of audacity to be like, you know, 55 yourself and talking to a 52 year old and be like, look, you know, let's, you know, so I'll take this two ways. Like, let's go. Let me let's teach go. you. Yeah. Yeah. Let me let me teach you a thing about how you're spending your money. It's just like, excuse me, I've been you know spending money for for thirty years, and I've gotten to this point in my life, and I think I'm doing all right. It gets all weird and awkward. That's on one hand. Interestingly enough, on the other hand, I have, I have with brand new retirees said, look, this is going to sound crazy. I know you've gotten to this point. This is a super success that you've made it to being able to retire. But what if I asked you to track your expenses for the next 12 months? <laughs> you know, like what? You want me to create a budget? You want me to track and reconcile cash flow? And it's like 100%. Let's go right back to the most fundamental thing possible because here we've been talking about you know, living a certain lifestyle during retirement and all these years of financial planning that we've done together. And this is the first year you're actually living that lifestyle. So why don't we actually see, you know, what that is in dollar values? And that's connected. And, I, you know, I, I'm thinking of one particular client where it was one year after engaging, I, I gave that recommendation. And sure enough, here comes a spreadsheet from a 70 year old outlining everything they had spent their money on in the past 12 months. And wouldn't you know, it was a little less than what we were thinking would be the lifestyle expense during retirement. And that was awesome. So, you know, yeah, on one hand, you don't want to necessarily tell, 
you know, someone who's been doing something a certain way for so long, or trying to, you know, educate them at that stage of their life. Um, and then, you know, as I just demonstrated, it wasn't so much education. It was, hey, let's see this through. Let's make sure this is right. And if that's education, fine. Well, it's sort of like a, a back to basics idea, right? Like we've piled so much complication onto this over the years that we've sort of buried the very, yeah. initial, the very initial premise you finished that, the book. that we started you, with. Yeah, you, you finished the book. Let's go pick it. You know, you just go, what do you do? You, you put, again, yeah. yeah, exactly. You go back to <laughs> chapter one. Let's see what, let's see what we missed. Well, Douglas, this has been fantastic. We're starting to run out of time here, but I'd really like to thank you for, for coming on and being such a great guest. Oh, thank you for having me. My pleasure. And for all the listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me on the next episode of Celebrity Estates. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.